We have a, two scripture readings now, one from the Old Testament and then one from the New. The Old Testament reading is from Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. Please give careful attention to the reading of God's Word. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And then 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. Good evening. May God be pleased to open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of his holy law this evening. While I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Of course, these are words from the great Martin Luther, very fitting words to begin this sermon on Reformation Sunday as we consider one of the overarching principles of the Reformation, sola Scriptura, which means, of course, Scripture alone. Of course, the Church of Luther's day had said, no, it's Scripture plus tradition that formed the rule of the Church. Now, Protestants do not reject all Church tradition. We could, for example, speak of the Presbyterian tradition. We could speak of the early Church tradition. Tradition, we do not reject all of tradition. There are things of value. There are things which are helpful. But understand that the church of Luther's day, and this extends sadly to the present day in some quarters, that tradition 
was a separate oral tradition extending back to the apostles, which in which is in addition to the scripture and is of equal value and authority to the scripture. So enter the, the Reformation. As you know, when Luther begins to study this issue carefully and intensely, Luther, of course, being one initially predisposed to accept such tradition, he discovers something very staggering which would challenge that understanding and alter it forever. That this tradition, much of this tradition, had actually contradicted the Holy Word of God on numerous points. And it's no wonder that the reformers saw Jesus' words to the Pharisees as fitting in their day. Matthew 15, verse 6, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. Johann Meyer von Eck. That's one of Luther's fiercest opponents. He insisted vehemently in this, despite Luther's criticisms, that this tradition of the church and its councils, they couldn't be questioned by a single individual such as Luther. So Eck demands that Luther respond to this challenge clearly and unambiguously, would he recant or not? And at that, Luther gives a famous reply which would echo through the halls of church history to the present day. He says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and do contradict themselves, that I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot, I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to do so. It is against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. A conscience captive to the word of God. What beautiful words and those aptly summarize one of the battle cries of the Reformation, sola scriptura. And it's a principle which undergirds our text of Scripture, our new co- both our Old Covenant and our New Covenant text. Today, Psalm 119, Psalm 119, that Hebrew acrostic says, the Bible is God's word from A to Z, following the Hebrew alphabet. But 2 Timothy 3 And how are we to act on this principle, practically speaking? What is the practical, if we could boil this down to an imperative, to a command, what can we summarize as the answer? And that answer can be summed up in one word. What are you to do today? Here's here's your application, summed up in one word by the Apostle Paul. It is the word continue. Continue. 
As as Paul says to Timothy in verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Continue in that word as the sole authority of your faith. But now we ask the question of the text, what does the Bible say about itself in this regard? Is it sufficient? And if so, are any additions to the word of God uh, acceptable? Do they come in stark contradiction, rather, to the notion of the Bible's sufficiency when we think of additions to the word of God? This is what we are dealing with in this text today. If you're to continue, that's your command, that's your imperative. If you're to continue in the word of God as your ultimate authority, then the question is why. This is a why sermon. It is a sermon to motivate you. The Apostle Paul pastorally is motivating you with reasons as to why you're to continue. And he gives three overarching reasons. First, and these are the points of the sermon today. First, because of the origin of Scripture. Secondly, because of the usefulness of Scripture. And third, because of the sufficiency of Scripture. Those are the three points. And let us look at these three reasons now. So first, and this, of course, is what is perhaps the the clearest, the most well-known teaching in the whole Bible on the subject, Paul speaks to the origin of Scripture, in this being really the basis for the second and third point that I'm about to give, that when you understand where this Bible came from, what these, what is the source of these words, then you'll be encouraged to continue. And your origin of Scripture is stated unambiguously in verse 16 that all Scripture is breathed out By God. So immediately we're unpacking this crucial doctrine of inspiration of the Holy Scripture. So, what do we mean by inspiration? And it's very uh, possible to be misled at this point because when we think of inspiration, you know, we think of Shakespeare, who is a great writer, who is inspired as if from this external impulse. He wrote great works, or we think of a great writer of a composer of music who is inspired, or we think of a, a, a motivational speaker who inspires, who, who fills us with an with a energy to, to do something with our lives. But you see, the biblical doctrine of inspiration is far beyond this. And this is the text to demonstrate that, particularly in the language of verse 16, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. So those last words, breathed out by God, are actually one compound word in the Greek. Two words. uh, So the word is theopneustos, and the first word is theos, meaning God, coming also the second word meaning neo, to breathe. If you're familiar with the old King James Version, I don't... I'm sure many of you have that, enjoy that. It says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now to inspire is literally to breathe in to something. 
So that could be misleading. It could, it could lead to this idea that God's breath is being infused into this human product that humans produced. Now, does God energize his word? Absolutely, God energizes his word. But that's not the idea in this word, theopneustos. No, the wonderful theologian, wonderful theologian Benjamin Warfield, did extensive work on this compound word, theopneustos, which has never been matched. And he comes to this earth-shattering conclusion that the word theopneustos, it has nothing to do with inspiring, but rather outspiring. Outspiring. So this word, as it turns out, is speaking of the very origination of Scripture by God. Literally, Scripture is the breath of God. Scripture is whoosh, breathed out by God. And we see that correct translation in our ESV. All scriptures breathed out by God. It is expired by God. Now, your talk this morning, your talk this afternoon, your talk this evening has been you breathed. That's you breathed. And similarly here, what we're saying, hopefully... What you were doing is you thought about what you said in your mind and that what you thought about, you henceforth breathed out in your words. It was you breathed in your speech. That's the scripture's teaching about itself right here. It is echoed in other places in the scripture. And we see this, for example, in places like 2 Peter 1.20, verse 20 and 21, a very, very important text. It says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That is, contrary to liberal theologians, the Scripture did not come about. It did not originate in the prophets' own ideas about God or their own musings about God he goes on to say, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that truth is reflected in such places as 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. I read to you there where King David says, uh, he says, the Spirit of the Lord, he spoke through me. His word, his word was on my tongue. David is saying the Holy Spirit, he's the primary author. I'm but the secondary author through whom the Spirit spoke. Peter says men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Carried along, born, the Greek word phenomenoi. That's, that's a passive. It is the same verb that is used in the book of Acts. Chapter 27, do you remember that text? This is when this northeast wind comes howling out of the heavens and takes hold of the ship that Paul is traveling in. And his ship is carried along. It is driven along, along by the wind. 
That's the very same verb used to describe how the Holy Spirit carries along the writers of Scripture. Now, this does not, as has often been said, this does not mean they're merely, you know, human typewriters taking dictation from the Holy Spirit. No, clearly God uses their personalities, their writing styles, what have you, uh, their personalities, yet so carries them along so that what they recorded was his word and entirely without error. This is the scripture's teaching about itself. As Peter says here simply, men spoke from God. So right here in 2 Timothy 3.16, you read, Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, the Greek word for Scripture there is, of course, the word graphe. But what are these sacred writings? So when we talk about the Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed, Paul writing at this time, it's an open canon period, the New Testament has not been completed uh, do we conclude that he's only referring to the Old Testament? Well, of course not. Of course not. We want to note here that the early church already regarded the Gospels and these, these early epistles as New Testament scripture. One place where you see this clearly and unambiguously is 1 Timothy 5.18. So Paul there, he uses this same word for a scripture, which is the word graphe. And he, he uses that word graphe to apply to quotations of both the Old Testament and the New Testament scripture. So he says there, I'll read it to you for the scripture, says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So that's from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4 in the Old Testament. But then he goes on to say, hey, the laborer deserves his wages, which is a quote from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 7. And, and then he refers to these as graphe, scripture. That's the point. He, he refers to both of them as scriptures even at this early stage. So in the same way, the apostle Peter refers to Paul's writings as scripture, as graphe, he says in 2 Peter 3.16, he says there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable rest to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. The other scriptures besides Paul. Peter undeniably saw Paul's writings to be scripture, even at this early stage. Now, these undeniable truths, nevertheless, brought the reformers into conflict with the church of their day regarding this canon of the scripture. When we talk, by the way, about the canon of the scripture, that word means rod, referring to a measure it's referring in biblical parlance to that list of books that is considered holy writ. And there was stark opposition between the reformers and the church of his day on the canon. You see, Rome's view was that, well, the church made the scriptures. The church made the scriptures. And that is to say, 
it wasn't until these church councils declared these books to be worthy of Holy Scripture that they became Holy Scripture. And thus it is the church that gives the Scripture its authority. Stark opposition from the Reformers here. The Reformation said, no, the church doesn't create, didn't create the Scriptures. It's the opposite. The Scriptures created the church. The Scripture, in other words, uh, does not derive its authority from the church. But according to 2 Timothy 3.16, again, we come to this verse, our sermon text, the, the Scripture has intrinsic, self-attesting authority. The moment God breathes it, it is Scripture. It is worthy of the canon. I mean, isn't that a clear implication of this text? I think it is. So the early councils that deliberated on matters of if canon and, and what have you, understand this. This is very important. They were not making the books of the Bible canonical. No, rather, they were simply declaring which books were canonical against false contenders. False contenders that made those counsels necessary. And that is important for us to understand. What is the criterion for canonicity? What's the benchmark for canonicity? It's in 2 Timothy 3.16. You know what it is? Inspiration. Divine inspiration as revealed through the writings of the authenticated spokesmen of God, the apostles and the prophets. That is the measure of canonicity. You need to understand that the, 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 the people of God are not waiting around for some council to declare, okay, these books are the word of God, so listen to them. No, what, what, what does the Bible itself say? The Bible itself says that the people of God received these epistles as God's word immediately due to their inherent canonicity. And this is exactly what is reflected in Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, who said, listen to this, and we also, this is Paul saying, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. They received it immediately. Who's one reformer who deserves a lot of mention alongside with Martin Luther? John Calvin, maybe? Know that guy? Sure. Well, in Calvin's famous and brilliant work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he, he calls Rome's view of Scripture a pernicious error that in this is quoting Calvin here, he says, this pernicious error that Scripture has only so much weight as is conceded to it by the consent of the church. 
as if the eternal and inviolable truth of God depended upon the decision of men. And Calvin sees that notion utterly refuted in Ephesians 2.20, which says the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And Calvin says, again, quoting John Calvin here, he says, if the teaching of the prophets and the apostles is the foundation, then he reasons this must have had authority before the church began to exist. Calvin, along with Paul, said that the word carries its own self-attesting authority as the out-breathing of God. Paul again says all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God. It is unfailing in what it says. It is without error in what it says. And thus it is to be the final authority in matters of faith and life. Again, uh, the tradition of the church, hey, to the extent that it reflects the scripture and is helpful, that is fine. If it helps us to better understand the Bible's meaning, that is good. If it is there to preserve and propagate the Bible's teachings, it's great there too. But church tradition does not have magisterial authority. As if, oh, this is what the, the Bible says, believe, believe it or else. That's not church authority. It's not magisterial. Church authority is not magisterial authority. It is ministerial authority. And that is all the difference in the world. Tradition, while being a tool, is not the ultimate and infallible guide to life, but it is rather uh, subordinate to Scripture. Could we say it's but a handmaiden to biblical witness? And in that sense, it is helpful. Can I ask you, can tradition be amended? Sure it can. You know, Westminster Confession, which is our standard, our subordinate standard, it's been amended. Our tertiary standards, Book of Church Order, I mean, that might be amended next year. These things can be amended and have been and will be, perhaps. Can the Bible be amended? Absolutely not. Un, unthinkable. Unthinkable. Tradition, any subordinate standard, is subject to the authority of God's Word as the final authority, the final Supreme Court of appeal. Everything must be weighed by the Holy Scripture in our faith and our practice. That, that's, that's what the Reformers came to, and they found that tradition was sorely lacking. Sorely lacking. At one point in the Reformation, Luther, he finds himself replying to Henry VIII, whom he called King Hines. And he says, for me, it is enough that King Hines cannot quote a single scripture. I place against the sayings of all fathers and every artifice and every word of angels, men and devils, the scripture and the gospel. Here I stand, here I bid defiance, here I strut about and say, God's word for me is above everything. I will not give a hair 
though a thousand Augustans, a thousand Heinz churches were all against me, and I am certain that the true church with me holds fast to the word of God. And so this text would bid you as well. This evening is Paul's, all scripture. Is, is, it's God-breathed. This is the primary reason you are to, what? Continue in the word which you believed. Continue. But now we come to the second reason you're to continue. A reason which flows out of the first. For if the Bible is breathed out by God, well, secondly, it follows that it's, it's useful. That's our second point here. Scripture is useful. Listen to verse 16 again. All Scripture is breathed out by God and what? Profitable. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It is useful. It is profitable, Paul says. So, I mean, you see two pairs of words there. You see uh, teaching and reproof. You see correction and righteousness. So that first pair teaching and reproof, those have to do with doctrine. And positively speaking, all Scripture is profitable for teaching. Should you as a Christian study the Gospel of John? Yes? Should you as Christians study the book of Leviticus? Uh, That's Old Testament. It's a little strange, bizarre world there. But it's Scripture. You should study it. Should you study the book of Romans? Of course. Should you study the book of Revelation? Uh, So many interpretations, so many views and schools, and I think I'll take a pass on that one. Paul says all Scripture is profitable. Study it. Work at it. Work at it. It's hard to understand. I get it. Paul says it's useful. God has revealed himself in all these books. He's revealed himself in, sure, the didactic sections. He's revealed himself in the proverbial uh, sections. He's revealed himself himself in the narrative uh, sections. In the poetry, he's revealed Christ. He's revealed Christ in the apocalyptic. Paul says all Scripture is profitable for teaching. Yes, but not only... For, for this, but also for reproof. Now, which one of us thinks it's pleasant to offer rep- biblical reproof to another human being? It's not pleasant. But, I mean, these reproofs are in the Word. They must be given. So to do so otherwise, then, would be to deny the full authority of God's Word and thus render yourself spiritually impotent. The psalmist says this, doesn't he? Listen to Psalm 38, verse 14. He laments, I I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. That's a lamentable situation. But on the contrary, biblical rebukes are gracious and necessary and helpful in order to loosen the stronghold that sin has on other people. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 39, verse 11? He says, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. 
But of course, I think it goes without saying that scriptural rebukes are not only good for giving to others, but also good for giving to yourselves as well. In receiving unto yourself, the godly man does not view rebukes as insults, but is profitable for spiritual growth. This is what led the psalmist to say. In Psalm 141, verse 5, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil from my head. Let my head not refuse it. That's the godly man. When teaching and rebuke, when they go together, you have a healthy church. Yep, that's ingredients for a healthy church. When either is lacking, teaching or rebuke, the church falls into serious decay. According to the word of God, no errors in faith and life, they must be pointed out. False teachers, false teaching must be exposed. To, to do so is not unloving, but it is important. It is an important function of all scripture. Graphe. This is why Luther's nailing of the 95 theses to the, to the church door in Wittenberg, that's why that was a biblical thing to do. But not only is Scripture profitable and useful for teaching and rebuke or warning to leave the wrong path, there's a positive end toward it in the second couplings here, which deal with being directed toward the right path. And this is correction and training in righteousness. So the first word here, correction, that you notice in your Bibles comes from a Greek word. You know what that Greek word means? Straight. That's what the word correction means, straight. Now, the New Living Translation of the Bible is probably not the first thing you go to on your nightstand, perhaps. It has a thought-for-thought philosophy of translation of the Greek text that is known as dynamic equivalence, whereas our ESVs or other Bibles use a literal Word-for-word philosophy of translation, which is known as formal equivalence. However, that being the case, the New Living Standard Bible does give a very insightful rendering on this text. So rather than saying the Bible is profitable for correction, you know what it says? Listen to this. It's great. It says the Bible is profitable for straightening you out. It straightens us out. The Bible is going to straighten you up as you listen to it. That does capture the, the word here. The word does talk about being straight, which is to say the Bible is eminently uh, uh, practical with respect to the way you believe and look to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sinners and the way you live your life in union with the, with the risen Christ. So the last of the pair is that the Bible is profitable. It is useful for training in righteousness. So so the Bible is profitable as a training manual. Think of it as a a training manual. It's used by your teachers, your pastors, your elders to disciple 
you so that you flourish in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's a training manual. It, it trains you in righteousness. Titus 2, 11, 13 puts it so well that for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, <laughs> waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All these go together. As you accept, as you understand these teachings of the God-breathed Bible, out-breathed Bible, you'll be directed away from the wrong path, led upon the right path, and trained unto godliness. Is this, and what is profitable for this? Uh, some scripture? No, Paul says all scripture is profitable for this. But this leads us to our third and final reason today. That Paul says you are to, what's our word? Continue in the word. That's, that's your exhortation today. The third and final reason Paul gives is since the Bible's God-breathed, well then it's not only useful for creed and conduct, but it is also what? Sufficient for creed and conduct. Verse 17 says... But I read it with verse 16 again for context that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture equips the man of God for some good work? No, for every good work for every good work. Makes him complete for most good works? No, for every good work. The Bible is sufficient to make you complete. Only Scripture is needed, along with the Holy Spirit in his enablement. Now, Paul says here, the Scriptures, the scriptures equip a man for every good work. It is all Scriptures which make you complete. So Paul is utilizing here um, two, two forms of, a, 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 of the Greek word for equip. An adjective, which means equip, or complete rather, the adjective means complete, and a participle. That looks like a verb, but it's functioning like an adjective to describe. And, and that word is equipped. And, uh, okay, simplify that. I'm sure you want that simplified. He's literally saying that the man of God is super equipped for every good work by the scriptures. Now, if all scripture can make you complete, can equip you for every good work, then how can the 1995 Catechism of the Catholic Church, echoing Vatican II, so clearly reject the sufficiency of Scripture alone. To quote, I'm quoting the Catholic Catechism here to show you the concern that it says the Church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. End quote. And that same idea exists in the, the 
the creed of the Council of Trent. So John Calvin, of course, is, is dealing with this when he heard about how this document speaks about God's holy word in connection with tradition, Calvin sought to mean that Scripture must be interpreted by tradition, that you and your pews, you, you, you can't do it. You can't come to any conclusion about what Scripture says apart from tradition. To which Calvin replies, and he was rarely short of a reply, Calvin replies, they wish by their tyrannical edict to deprive the church of all liberty. For by the meaning they affix to Scripture, what it may, it must immediately be embraced. Again, we use creeds. Do they help? They do help. They help a great deal. We read Christian books from godly men. Do they help? Immensely. They help. Great deal. To, I would add, to the extent that they reflect Holy Scripture, they help. To the extent that they coach you as an individual to better understand Scripture, they help. We in the Reformed Church do not embrace nuda scriptura. We do not embrace nuda scriptura like the radical Anabaptists who historically rejected all creeds. But rather, against Nuda Scriptura, we accept Sola Scriptura, which allows for creeds and confessions as subordinate to the Word of God and answerable to the Word of God. They're helpful as roadmaps to get the lay of the land but they are answerable to the final authority of God's word. Put simply, one, it's simple. It's the word that determines the creeds, not the creeds which determines the Bible and its meaning. And this is why Tyndale, wonderful Tyndale, he wanted the plowboy to know the Bible better than the Catholic priests. This is why Luther translates the Bible into the German tongue of his people, and according to uh, that Calvin biographer, probably uh, best biography is by T.H.L. Parker, if you're interested in a biography of, of Calvin. According to Parker, it's the sufficiency of Scripture as the unique and the only Word of God that was such a controlling principle in the ministry of John Calvin during the Reformation. So Parker says, and I'm quoting Parker here, he says, On Sunday, Calvin always took the New Testament, except for a few psalms on Sunday afternoon. During the week, it was always the Old Testament. He took five years to complete the book of Acts. He preached 46 sermons on Thessalonians, 180. 86 on Corinthians, 86 on the pastorals, 43 on Galatians, 48 on Ephesians. He spent five years on his harmony of the Gospels. That was just his Sunday work. During the weekdays in those five years, he preached 159 sermons on Job, 200 on Deuteronomy, 353 on Isaiah, and 123 on Genesis. And why did he do that? Because of his understanding that the Bible is God-breathed. That was the conviction. 
unlike the writings of the fathers of the church, perhaps helpful at points, respectable at points, the Bible has this big difference in that the, the source, the, origina- the bi- origination of the Bible is God himself. It's the breath of God. Its words are his very breath. That's why Calvin saw all of the scripture, all to be the word of God. It was that which was to be mined expositorily in this feverish activity of his preaching ministry and humbly following in his footsteps. That's why Pastor Dorman here in this church is seeking to do the same, to preach to you the unadulterated word of Jesus Christ in the Old and New Testaments, as is Brother uh, Pastor Renahan as well. So we return to the beginning. If God's word is the word, of, if God's word is the very breath of God, there can be no tradition that can claim equal footing. How much less a tradition that contradicts it? You know, Calvin said, "Hey, I'll grant the Pope for a second for the sake of the argument, but even if that Pope contradicts prior Scripture, then he's found to be false." Well, likewise here. Likewise here, if there's any tradition which contradicts the Scripture, what what does Paul say in Galatians? I mean, we're just being cranky as Reformation people here, kind of just getting angry and worked up. Well, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1. That even if an apostle or angel from heaven comes to you and preaches a different gospel than the one that has been preached to you, let him be accursed, eternally condemned. But that being true, of course, of course, there is a positive way to state this matter in a way that is uplifting. And it is simply to say this, that Scripture is life. Long before the Reformers were in diapers, there was a fellow named Moses who said to the people of God in Deuteronomy 32, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life but also it was later one far greater than Moses who came, who was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Forty days, our Lord Jesus. And there you read that it was his vast, profound knowledge of Holy Scripture, his commitment to the Word of God by which he was equipped to counter the attacks of the temptation of the evil one, of Satan, by quoting from the very book of Deuteronomy that I just mentioned from Moses a second ago. No quotations from church tradition were needed in the mouth of Jesus to do that. And in Israel, there was a lot of that going around during that time. But no, the scripture, 
was sufficient for your Lord, Son of God, Jesus Christ, incarnate to resist the very wiles of the devil. Moses said the scripture is your life. Jesus, in quoting Moses, said that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Or as the apostle would summarize it, all scripture. Graphe. Can it be any wonder then that the Bible was such a jewel in the hands of the reformers that they devoured it. Not because it was some manual for living a happy life or some textbook of philosophical notions about God. No. Rather because the Christian had in his very possession, as Luther said, the swaddling clothes in which Christ lies. That's what he called the scripture. Brothers and sisters, if, if the inspiration of the scriptures, its origination, if its usefulness, if its sufficiency, those three points, if that's what the reformers relied upon and leaned upon, if that's what Moses declared, if that's what Christ, the Lord Jesus, depended upon during his hour of need in the wilderness, then should this sufficiency and authority and helpfulness be anything less to you? But take heart that because of all this, you can continue, continue, continue in the word, joining the church as you cry, sola scriptura. Let us pray. O most gracious Heavenly Father, how we are thankful, so thankful for the your word that you did not leave us as orphans. You breathed out your special revelation. It was committed to writing. You preserved it. You made sure it was preserved. You made sure it was propagated that we possess it today. It has been translated into a tongue that we can understand. You have assured us of its origination from you and its usefulness and its sufficiency for every good work. And we thank you and we pray, oh Lord, how we are deficient unless we continue. How we are deficient unless we look to Christ as the only Savior of sinners, that in union with him we receive the Holy Spirit of the living God who then dwells in us and illuminates the meaning of Scripture and helps us to live it out. Oh, Father, we do pray. By word, by spirit, help us continue in this holy word. And we thank you for it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, let us now uh, sing.